Dirty Paper Project, Dirty Paper Podcast. Welcome back to part two of episode one. Before I jump into this, I just want to continue to reiterate why I'm doing this. And number one is that I really, really think the process needs to be changed, especially for Article 15s and the appellate for Article 15s. And I believe that in doing this, I think I'm highlighting where the system is wrong. I want to welcome you to the Dirty Paper Project and the Dirty Paper Podcast. So as we left off in episode one, we were talking about the reasons as to why I was staying in front of the commander and the things that led up to that. In this episode, I'm going to give you the beginning of where everything started to jump off. And that was with my EPR. And my question for you is, if my EPR looked this way, then what does the NCO in charge of the computer equipment, what does his EPR look like? Or what did his EPR look like? Because they're all matters of record now. This goes back to the beginning when talking about the Air Force's Board of Military Corrections. It has no investigative body. So that right there should have been the first of two things that should have been compared during this time frame. And that in itself would have just pointed out a lot of what's wrong with my case. Because what we're talking about here is is not only reprisal and retribution, we're also talking about favoritism. All right, so as we dive back into this, I want to go over a few key details. Um, Number one, you know that I made a protected statement in June or July of 2006. And number two, we know that the officer in charge of the flight and the non-commissioned officer in charge of the automated equipment inventory co-authored a statement where they blamed me for allegedly stealing or thieving $100,000 in computer equipment, as well as the mismanagement of the computer inventory at this point. Also, and number three, in addition to the statements made by the OIC and the NCOIC and my contradictory statement, we know that this statement was made in reference to reporter survey investigation 06075 which has mysteriously disappeared. When we finish this episode, you'll understand why it disappeared, but it still remains relevant. But at this point and what's going on, and just stepping back to part one, and the reason why I was standing in front of the commander, and as I deliberated that moment, began with that protected statement, which was now starting to present itself in my EPR of 2005 through 2006. Because you see, the OIC recirculated my EPR after my protected statement. Now that we have a baseline of facts, I say this because you see, in 2007, I myself didn't know that there was a difference between discrimination and reprisal. In fact, reprisal really wasn't talked about that much, but that word discrimination, it hung around and it hung around a lot. And it began to air itself over this particular situation because the apparentness of discrimination was there and reprisal wasn't so distinct in 2007. And I believe that was in my ignorance and what I thought discrimination was. But regardless of the distinction, the key here is the reporting of the incident and those actions thereafter. You see, even in 2007, the laws for uh, protected statements and whistleblower protections related to reprisal and retribution wasn't so clear. I'm going to prove to you that there was knowledge and cover-up. Number one, on part of the OIC, the officer in charge of my flight, and number two, the commander, and then eventually the Equal Opportunity Office because I reported this incident to them 15 months prior to the Article 15 conviction. 
So we'll get into that in episode three of this podcast. But just stating it isn't enough because at the time and not knowing that the OIC had recirculated my EPR. And not only that, he gave me a four rating. I want you to know that a four rating is not bad. It's not a bad EPR, but that's not the EPR that was circulated. Here's just a few points to prove why. The EPR that was being recirculated, I had been marked down in several areas. Several key areas in those areas impact your integrity, number one. It, it impacts who you are and how people see you on paper. And number three, overall, this EPR was recirculated to prove a point. To talk about those areas that I had been marked down in, number one, how well did I perform in my assigned duties? And then I was being marked down in section four, how is the radius conduct off duty? And then section five, how well does the radius supervise or lead? In addition to those three, I was also marked down in section seven, how well does the radius communicate with others? So in addition to the three markdowns, I was also marked down in duties and responsibilities. That little block in the beginning of the EPR, that had also changed. And it made me look like I was someone of subpar knowledge or subpar systems knowledge. When in fact, at this particular time, I was the senior non-commissioned officer. And from a knowledge and capability standpoint, this made me sound like I was someone who was just learning the job. But in fact, if you take and you look and compare at my 2004 through 2005 EPR, and what I want to reference in this episode in particular is this statement made by the non-commissioned officer in charge of the computer equipment, which was co-authored by the officer in charge of the flight. In this statement, you can see very well on line 21 that he identifies the initiation of the report to survey investigation. Now, this tells us from this standpoint that there was an investigation initialized or initiated. More importantly, if we look down on line 32 of this statement, the non-commissioned officer in charge of the equipment IDs me as a responsible party of the mismanagement and the missing equipment. So remember, in defense of this, I wrote a statement. Now, is that I provided the investigators with chronological evidence which showed dates and times of who and when they signed for the inventory, which in itself identifies when the non-commissioned officer in charge of the equipment account took over. On top of that, it states the status of the account at the time he took over, which I think more importantly, these documents not only showed and proved that the NCO or the non-commissioned officer in charge of the equipment took control of the account, he also identifies this on lines 13 through 20 of his statement. And he states, that he wasn't afforded the time to do the inventory. And I repeat, he states that he wasn't afforded the time to do the inventory. So for a year, this man sat around and did nothing. And this goes back to the comparisons of my EPR and his EPR. And the officer in charge of the flight allowed this type of stuff to happen. I mean, this is in addition to him writing this statement and co-authoring this statement. And now that the eyes and ears are on him to explain why him and the officer in charge tries to shift the blame to me. So to further combat this slander, I turned over the original documents signed by not only the non-commissioned officer in charge of the equipment, as well as the officer in charge of the flight. The commander at this point in time also signed this document. So now you have three people verifying that the account was 100% accounted for. But in addition to this document, I also turned over a document that came from a staff assistant visit from the 18th Wing AEPE office. And this document in itself 
verifies the status of the account and when it was done and by whom, which was me. And this is in May of 2005. So from May of 2005 to this particular point of June 2006, this man states in his statement that he wasn't afforded the time to do the inventory. Because you see, the Air Force's Board of Military Correction that sits under the Secretary of the Air Force, and it acts on their behalf, and it has the power to pull that EPR and then do a comparison, as I had asked. You see, the problem here is, is that if it's looked into or investigated, then it becomes a problem for the prosecution. So the Air Force's Board won't acknowledge it unless it's looked into prior to you submitting to the Air Force's Board of Military Corrections. What I'm saying here is, is that if there is no investigation done prior to your submission by OSI or security forces or some small investigative entity, the Air Force's Board of Military Corrections will not look into it. It means it didn't happen. So that is why I want you to understand that those people out there who's writing the Board of Military Corrections and can't afford a lawyer, and that is why I'm doing this this way. What about them, those who can't afford a lawyer to go up? What about those people out there who can't for an investigation or someone or to hire a private investigator to go through these matters. And then thinking about all these people that you have to go back and get statements from, come on, it's not going to happen. And that's why I believe this part, especially with Article 15, especially those that come on the heels of malfeasance or misconduct, the investigative process needs to sit outside of the Air Force's Board of Military Corrections. And once that investigation is complete, it needs to move back into the Air Force's Board for finalization. That's what I think the Air Force's Board of Military Corrections is for, for correcting records. But there's no way that you can submit this to the Air Force's Board of Military Corrections and have them investigate it. And I'll reiterate this throughout this podcast. The Air Force's Board of Military Corrections does not have an investigative body. So as you can see, anonymity and impunity, and for years and years and years, these people have fought to try and correct these mistakes. And most have lost this fight or still continuing to fight. And I think that this is where the Dirty Paper Project comes in. And through transparency, I hope, we hope, to not only show you how we're fighting, to also bring out a lot of those people who are fighting so that all of our stories can get heard. So moving on and just having to recap so that you know and understand a bit of this uh, reporter survey investigative process, in February through May of 2005, there was a report to survey investigation done. And at the conclusion of that investigation, three things were determined. Number one, the ADPE or custodian or the manager or the equipment custodian will have oversight of all ADP activities. And I'll say that again. Whoever sits in this position will have oversight of all ADPE activities. And the minimum grade for a custodian needs to be no lower than an E5. I'll say that again. The minimum grade for a custodian needs to be no lower than an E5. And just to take a note, in this report of survey investigation, and to be noted in this report of survey investigation, dated 5 June of 2005, which states the date that I was appointed. So you ask, where does this fit into 2006? You see, on 21 June of 2006, the 18th Comm Squadron sent the document to the 18th Medical Support Squadron Commander, and this document notified him of the completion of Reports of Survey Investigation 05119. And see, that 05 denotes 2005, and that 119 states which number 
of reported survey investigation this is. And this document also states that neither negligence nor financial responsibility was assessed or levied and it was closed. And the reason why this document is so important is because it also identifies the status of the account. So that means that it was 100% accounted for. And just a side note, not only did we do one reports of survey investigation, we completed two. But 05119 is the most important part of that. In addition to that, a fact that's not to be looked over is that the reporter survey will be on file for the next six years. The next six years. And I found that amazing because reporter survey 06075 done a year later cannot be found. I mean, not suspicious and not too alarming until you combine the fact that the non-commissioned officer in charge of the equipment inventory states in a signed witness statement that he did not take over the account until 23 September of 2005. Now, this is a head-scratcher for me, and this is where it kind of gets suspicious, and we'll talk a lot more about that in episode three. But for now, staying in July of 2005, in those documents that we discussed earlier, we're going to go to July of 2005, where he signs a document which appoints him as the custodian. Now, in this case, either he didn't read or he missed the subject line <laughs> where it states appointment of automated information systems equipment custodian. Not only does he sign this document, but you see on the 11th of July, he also signs a document stating when he received a piece of equipment. So that means that he also knows that he's in charge of the equipment inventory. Now for me, looking back over these documents, this is where it began to be suspicious, which he writes in his statement. Not only does it become a knowledgeable act, and the intentional deceit or cover-up. Because, you see, this document alone proves that I was not responsible for any actions concerning the automated data processing equipment inventory of a computer equipment account, as he so boastfully claims in his statement, which, again, is noted on lines 23 and 32 of his statement. These facts, just by themselves, doesn't prove that alone. It proves otherwise. And going back to July of 2005, the 18th Com Squadron slash ADP office inspected the inventory. They inspected the paperwork and they found that the inventory was well organized and that the equipment custodian, referencing me, was knowledgeable in his responsibilities. In addition to all of that, they also stated the fact that I knew the location of each one of those assets. In addition to this was also a findings document and a recommendation letter stating that all we needed to do was add IPMS or barcode labels to each piece of equipment, which is a new thing at the time. And if any of you out there that's been an ADP custodian for equipment, you understand what IPMS labels are for. And anybody that does equipment, you know what it's for. But at this particular time, it was a new thing. In fact, in 2005, this was brand new because the year before, they didn't have IPMS labels for equipment. And all we had to do was add those labels. Other than that, the inventory was done. Remember, he signs a document on the 11th of July of 2005, which states that he was now in charge of the inventory. And the document I just referred to was dated 20 July of 2005. And this document in itself explains that there was no financial responsibility levy. And on top of that, it states that the inventory, reported survey, and the SAV will be completed in 30 days when we stated that the IPMS labels were on all, was on all the equipment. And this is the point where I began to question my sanity when dealing with the Board of Military Corrections. Because my first submission, I explained all of this. This in itself talks about 
fraud, waste and abuse, mismanagement, and all of that stuff in my first submission. But my second submission, I went over this in detail. Either the Board of Military Corrections missed it because maybe I missed something. Because now we know that in his statement, he stated that I was accountable for the missing equipment. And now we know that that could not be the truth because even if that stuff didn't exist, we didn't have any of those things, right? On the 25th of August of 2005, he signs a document along with the officer in charge of the flight, in addition to the squadron commander. And this document notes the conclusion of the staff assistant visit, which we briefed earlier about the IPMS labels, in conjunction with the conclusion of reports of survey 05119 of June of 2005. Which, again, I'll briefly note that the IPMS labels, which were procured during the staff assistant visit, was now complete. And now, a fact that cannot be missed is contained within this document on line 1, subsection C. And it states, the most recent inventory done by me in May of 2005 had zero discrepancies. And if you look down on this document, on line 2, they recommended closing the SAV. And now again, this is where I begin to question my sanity. It might just be me, but as you can see, the statement of the non-commissioned officer and the officer in charge of the flight falsely accusing me is made up. And it's made up to shift the blame of fraud, waste, and abuse, and the mismanagement of the inventory. Now, and this is where I believe things started to go wrong. So as I stood there in front of that major and he was reading over the Article 15 charge sheet, I began to understand why I was standing in front of him. And it had nothing, nothing to do with me being AWOL or me failing to obey an order to call some. So as we close out part two of episode one, the inventory, we went over the facts of why and how I got to stand in front of the commander. And we also went over the false statement made by the non-commissioned officer in charge of the equipment inventory, which was co-authored by the officer in charge of the flight. And I want you to remember, this is about highlighting the need for change. And believe you me, the system needs to change. Please tune back in to the next episode, part three of episode one, where we discuss the conclusion of episode one, where the officer in charge of the flight tried to secretly hide an act of reprisal contained within my EPR. And as always, thank you for tuning in to the Dirty Paper Project and the Dirty Paper Podcast. Be safe out there and take care of yourself. Dirty Paper Project, Dirty Paper Podcast.